Welcome to Tunes Made Podcast, episode 25. We're at a quarter to a hundred already of these things. I'm Ray. I'm Mark. And Mark, you had an opportunity to interview Greg Renoff, right? He's a PhD in history from Brandeis University. And he has a book out, Ted Templeman, A Platinum Producer's Life in Music. And so you got a chance to interview him. Yeah, it was interesting because... I read his first book, Van Halen Rising, where he kind of documented the start of Van Halen. And I found that interesting. And I was like, oh, he's got a new book out. So I checked out that and it was just really cool to hear about the life of a producer, especially since I'm a big Van Halen fan, Mm -hmm. getting in, understanding how not only did he work with Van Halen, but it was the Doobie Brothers and Van Morrison and Aerosmith and Nicolette Larson. And it was just top caliber list of artists. Yeah, it's a really good, I mean, it's a really great track record when you look at Templeman's career. You know, you got, like you said, you got the Doobie Brothers, a ton of work with the Doobie Brothers and a bunch of offshoots of that. Worked with Michael McDonald, worked with Tom Johnston on solo stuff. And of course, the, the Van Halen stuff and working with David Lee Roth working with Sammy Hagar even, and then even some of the, the individual stuff that he did. I mean, he, he did uh, another passenger for Carly Simon in the mid seventies. And an interesting one for me is Eric Clapton's behind the sun from 1985. He, he was co-producer on, on some of that. And it's got one of my favorite Clapton songs on it forever, man. And, and then he did an Aerosmith record done with mirrors right about that time. He did the bullet boys later. I mean, you know, you look at this track record and he, a lot of really great stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's undeniable. And, when it comes to his philosophy and the way he approached producing the book really dives into that how he really wanted artists to be able to just naturally capture their sound and let them just be themselves and i think that really says a lot of why if you listen and you look for ted templeman's name on whatever he produced if you put them side by side it's all different styles but it has a a flavor to it and a sound that is undeniable. Yeah, there's a lot of rock there, but there's a lot of diversity within rock, right? You know, and you think about the Van Halen sound versus the Doobie Brothers sound. There's a a clear difference there, right? They're both clearly rock bands, but clear difference there in terms of what they're doing. Yeah, and what I thought was interesting, we talked about this with Greg, is, you know, he had the opportunity to sit down with Ted Templeman and really talk about music. And... He actually went out and started talking about some of the other, you know, folks that he was working with and had the opportunity to write music. And he actually contributed a lot to the songs that you just mm-hmm. all those artists. But they'd always say, Hey Ted, I want to give you credit. No, 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 no. I don't need credit on that. So what I always found interesting though is if you actually went back and you looked at all those tracks where mm-hmm. he could be listed as someone that gave musical direction, gave a lyrical idea. He was talking about, and this is not in the interview, but it's in the book, where he was at a live show, and I guess David Lee Roth said something to an audience, and so he's like, Dave, don't forget that. That'll be a good lyric later. So three <laughs> years later, it became Everybody Wants Some. And wow. Dave was struggling with the music because they had that very kind of very specific rhythm to that song. And Dave was trying to figure out lyrics. He was like, hey, Dave, what about that thing I told you a few years ago? He's like, I'm right on that. So he went and all of a sudden the lyrics came out. So, so you think about that, how even a song like that, his, his name isn't listening on that. And he never wanted that. He just wanted to help the artist get the best music down. 
I mean, it rings right in line with what we do on Toonsmate, right? We're looking at the joy of music. This is, the music is his craft. The idea there that, you know, it, it's almost like everything he does is about what can I do to make better music? You know, the, hey, remember that. That's going to make a good song. You know, filling in, playing drums, playing other instruments on on various tracks just to, you know, play a part there. And that's part of sort of the the dedicated producer your job is to get this thing done and get it done well and it's like that's his craft and that's exactly where his mindset was yeah and he taught it that is exclusively outlined in his book about how he really loved being in those sound studios where it was a little more professional you would have you had to be in there at a certain time and you you only had so much time to complete an album and really trying to produce something to get it out so that you can get it out to the public and it really matched what the company wanted where then he started getting into, well, then Eddie built this 5150 studio, which there was a different characteristic around it. And you really wanted to hang out. And it was, he at first thought, well, you know, Oh, this is going to be something where Eddie could write some music, but then he evolved into, we're going to do the whole album here. And to him, I think it was exactly what you said. It, it could hinder the process, whereas he was just hoping he wanted, to get, he wanted to get people to hear the music and get it out there. And there's a lot to say to that, that the producer has a lot of drive to get the artist to finally put their ideas down so that everyone else can hear it. All right, this sounds fascinating. I can't wait to listen to this interview. Let's get to it here. We got an interview with Greg Renoff, his book on Ted Templeman. All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of Mate. I'm excited today to bring you the author of Ted Templeman, a platinum producer's life in music, Greg Renoff. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me on, Mark. Oh, no problem. I read your first book, Van Halen Rising, and it was phenomenal. And then I just completed this book on Ted Templeman. And I got to tell you, Greg, uh, you just interweaved so many facets that are just missing from Van Halen folklore. It was a great piece of work. Oh, thanks. I appreciate that. I mean, it was really a uh, an honor to write that book with him and then to be able to kind of weave all the threads together, not just with Van Halen, but his whole his whole life journey, which was really, I thought, a, a great a great story uh, was, was super fun. And uh, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah. I mean, why do you think Ted Templeman is one of the best producers of all time? You know, I think because Ted really is somebody who I think like all great producers gets in sync with with the artist in a way that doesn't necessarily impose your own vision on it. I mean, I think there's there's multiple mm-hmm. ways that that producers can can get success. But, you know, for Ted, his theory always was that he wanted the artist's personality and basically the artist's sound to really come through rather than his whole sound. So. You know, as I said, I mean, I could point to producers who have a different philosophy and had success, but I think Ted's success came from, you know, really helping the artists feel as if that Ted was interested in trying to get their identity out there on the record rather than trying to say, okay, here's my kind of my sound and I want to impose my sound upon you, which is, again, another another way that plenty of producers have had hits. That for me, I think when I look through the whole course of Ted's career, because you think about someone like... Oh, Nicolette Larson. Ted had a hit with Nicolette Larson. It was basically like a soft rock disco song. And then he had mm-hmm. hits with Van Halen. He had hits with Doobie Brothers, with a whole host of acts stretching over the... I mean, he did a, he did a, a jazz act in the 90s. So he was really somebody who was, 
was open-minded about the types of artists he produced and then really, you know, never, you, you really can't listen to a record and, uh, of Ted's and say, oh, you know, he, he just basically reproduced the sound of this band with this band. It is, it is even, even stuff that he did very closely together, like the Sammy Hagar VOA record, the Aerosmith, the yeah, Done With Mirrors record, and then the Van Halen 1984. And those three records were done all within a period of, you know, a year and a half of each other and they don't sound alike. So it's interesting because he started as an artist. He was in... I think it was the Tiki's and then it was Tiki right. Tiki's and then Harper's Bazaar. Right. So do you think it was because he started as an artist and then as he started working with artists, he knew how to step in their shoes so that that kind of resonated with his approach? Yeah. I think in talking to Ted about that, I think that was, you know, there, he, we, we talked about that quite a bit, actually the idea that there are producers who are not musicians. So Ted's mentor, Lenny Warnker, Jerry Wexler is another one. They're not musicians, but they were very successful producers. And then there's producers that are musicians. And I think Ted took his own experiences as an artist and really used that to, to really find a way to be empathetic with the artist from the standpoint that even super successful artists don't always feel 100% confident. And I think that's one thing that Ted really tried to impress upon me is that, you know, you have this mythical idea in your head, meaning me or anybody else who doesn't understand it. You know, somebody who is a superstar never lacks confidence. You know, and Ted said he really was somebody who remembered himself because he was not a particularly good recording artist. What it felt like to be sitting on the in the studio room with the producer and the engineer on the other side of the glass in the booth, you know, going, do it again, do it again. And sort of looking at you like, that's not very good, Ted. You know, you're, you're really messing this up or whoever. You, know, we're, you guys, in the, your band are messing this up. I mean, Ted said he really, that really was um, helpful for him later to kind of understand that even uh, superstars can get spooked in the studio and can really feel as if they're not delivering quality. And I, I think that really helped him quite a bit, you know, and plus as a musician as well, I mean, Ted worked a lot on arrangements and melodies and these and lyrics with, with artists as um, a lot of producers do, you know, you sort of like kick ideas around with your artists and help them. But uh, obviously being a musician, Ted had the ability to sort of say, Hey, what do we, we change these chords here? Or this, you know, we should take this B part and scrap it and create a new B part where, you know, maybe somebody who wasn't a musician wouldn't look at songs that way. I'd love this approach. I mean, you talked about it a few times in the book. You know, Ted talked about the story, the fact that he would sneak out, kind of hide and say, oh, yeah, you know, uh, just you guys go practice. And then he would use that as the final cut because they're relaxed. So I felt like because he was an artist, he understood that you could have those jitters. And he even mentioned with Eric Clapton. <laughs> doing something similar where he told Eric he didn't like his sound and he even switched up some of the instruments. And, and I love that line, something around the fact that don't let a superstar intimidate you, stick to your guns kind of mentality. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the, the things about the book that I hope people really will understand and enjoy about it is that Ted was trying to show his own journey as someone who grew into the role of producer, you know, kind of learning from his mistakes in the past. And, you know, he would... He talked to me quite a bit about that sort of the first Doobie Brothers session because he felt like there were so many things that went on where he didn't assert himself the right way or he overasserted himself and it caused problems. But um, yeah, I mean, he talked about that quite a bit. He had seen the biggest stars in the world be produced like Sinatra, learned lessons from that. Here I go with Clapton. You know, he could sit down and then realize that, you know, even if this guy, I don't know him that well and he's considered you know one of the greatest guitarists in the world, I just can't sort of step back and go, it's Eric Clapton, you know, and he knows what he's doing. I need to my job is, is to make suggestions and to say, here's what I hear, Eric, and what I think would make it better. You know, and that's one of the things, and as I mentioned, when I, with Ted, he had seen 
Elvis Presley, he had seen Frank Sinatra record in the studio. And I think for him, those were big moments to kind of see superstars working in the studio and then kind of had that carry forward in his own career when he was working with superstars. Yeah, I mean, it was phenomenal. I love the way you kind of closed the book about the fact that as a kid, you started getting these albums and seeing 10 Templeman and all of them and the stumbling and all that music. And every time you saw his name associated with a record, you knew it was going to be good. And I actually had a very similar experience where I purchased the Van Halen record. Then I got the David Lee Roth and got the solo record and saw his name there and then continued to go on and purchase that. Why do you think across the board, we seemed that the Doobie Brothers were really was the span of a lot of that reflected his career. Was it the friendship with the Doobie Brothers that kept him going back to working with them? Yeah, I mean, I think for Ted with the Doobies, they were his first real, you know, hit band that he discovered, right? So he discovered them and then they ended up becoming stars. And I also, I think the relationships were really important to him. I mean, I think one thing that, you know, in retrospect, maybe we could have done more within the book is that, you know, Ted really had to wear those two hats where he had to be the producer slash person who's trying to be collaborative with his artists. But on the other hand, he was an executive at the record company. You know, so that was something that was not all producers had that. So, you know, example, someone like, um, you know, Martin Birch, when he produced, uh, who just passed away, unfortunately, great producer, when he produced for Deep Purple and these other bands, you know, he wasn't working for Warner Brothers when he produced Deep Purple, for example, he was an independent producer. And so I think for Ted, he did really feel this sense of loyalty to the band and the guys in the band, but also, of course, to the, to the record company as well. I mean, the Doobies were one of the most successful artists in the 70s for Warner Brothers, and Ted had the, sort of had his finger on the pulse of that act. And I think that was a thing, too, to keep that going. But, you know, in reading the, the book, I hope people really will get the sense, too, that for Ted, you know, his relationships with Tom Johnson and with Mike McDonald and these guys, they were important to him. They were friends, and he still maintains those friendships to this day, I'll, you know, I'll get an email from Ted every once in a while and I'll say, hey, you know, I just heard from Tom Johnson or, you know, or from, I spoke to Mike. And uh, I think those relationships transcended just the business, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Now, let's get into something that is, I know, I love this part of the book and I am a Van Halen nut. So I would imagine you're on a similar vein. So what about the relationship with Van Halen? Because that seemed to go far as well. I mean, he's getting called from Valerie Kelly to come and break up fights and do things of that nature. Is there anything that hit kind of the cutting room floor with Van Halen that you couldn't put in this book? <laughs> There's a lot, there a lot of stuff. I mean, I think one of the things with the biography is you have to know what to leave in and what to leave out. I think one of the things that Ted was really focused on and I was focused on is that he didn't want anyone to read the book and feel as if a trust had been broken. He wanted to be able to tell the story, but he also didn't want to feel like anybody kind of reading the book, meaning people he worked with going, I can't believe you shared that story. So I think a lot of it in there, I think if people are willing to read the book closely, you know, in a lot of circumstances in different parts of the book, I mean, there are things that are sort of left to you read between the lines. There were things that went on, as you might imagine, but you know, it's rock and roll. I mean, it's like, you know, yeah, it's either you write a book where you spill everything and you say, screw it, I don't care about what people think I'm going to write all this stuff because I, I want to write it. Or you sort of think, you know what? I don't want anyone to read this book and feel awful about the way this was written. And, and I think you can tell the truth. I mean, the book was truthful, you know, without having to sort of say, oh yeah, I'm going to put in every ugly little detail that ever went on with that. You know, there were stuff that went on with every artist. I mean, I could stuff he would tell me off the record that just a lot of stuff, like 99.5% of it wouldn't have improved the book. I mean, there might've been a couple of things that'd be like, well, I mean, that'd be interesting to kind of put it there, but it's just, you know, you didn't want anyone to pick up the book. 30 years later and go, why is this guy telling the story about me that 
right. doesn't really serve much purpose. There was a lot in here about the 5150 Studios, the fact that it really encouraged them not to record there. And then the, the whole 1984 tapes and trying to get a hold of them didn't get into any inclination. And maybe this is too future spec, but it seems like the scene now is everybody can record from home. I mean, you've got these home recording right. studios. Ozzy's using Pro Tools in his own home studio. Did Ted talk anything about it? Because Eddie was on the cusp of what right. most people are doing now, which is everything's coming out of their own home. Yeah, so I think my basic takeaway about Ted 5150 was that Ted encouraged Ed to build a studio, meaning that whenever, you know, whenever he talked to Eddie about it, he was like, it sounds great. Look, you know, it's going to be great. Ted really wanted... When he heard about it, he thought it was great because Eddie had all these musical ideas and he was, you know, using this little four track recorder in the house and whispering into recorders when his wife was asleep and these types of things. He said, you know, it'd be a place to work. That said, Ted had told me, and again, there were some stories here that were related to other artists that we didn't put in the book that, you know, he had visited home studios of other people you'd recognize, home, you know, big LA musicians, people we'd recognize. And it would just be like a disaster. Like you go in there and like, you know, I'll give you one. I mean, it's just like Brian Wilson. Brian Wilson recording at home, you know, with the sandbox, you know, you guys think everyone's heard the story about the, the basically the sand in the living room with the piano and trying to make a record at home. And, you know, Ted had seen all that go on and he wasn't saying, well, Eddie's going to do something, you know, Eddie's going to put sand under his piano and play at 5150 and go crazy. But he just knew that being inside a, a professional studio forced you to work in a way that when you're at home, you may not feel forced to work. I think that was the thing. And the other thing I think Ted really felt was that the Stones, the Beach Boys, Led Zeppelin, Carly Simon, Elton John, they all went to Sunset Sound to record, the biggest stars in the world because it was such an incredible sounding studio. So from Ted's perspective, he's like, if we get in Sunset Sound, why would we record in somebody's backyard? A studio that Ted had recorded first in there in 1967, had made numerous, numerous albums. You know, he knew it. He knew how it worked. You know, it's sort of like a, it's also a thing to understand is that a studio is, is sort of like a spaceship or a racing car at the time. There was all these controls and all these patch bays and Ted and Don had worked in Sunset Sound. Now, Don really had built, had been the primary person who had built 5150, but then, you know, Ted was coming in there as a person who didn't know that studio super well. Like, how's this going to sound if we do this? There was a lot of challenges there. So I think Ted was enthusiastic about the idea of a home studio, but he wasn't enthusiastic about making a record there. But as Ted points out, to me, when we talk about it, he's like, I didn't say no. I didn't say I'm the producer. I'm the vice president of Warner Brothers. We're not doing this. He said I could have, you know, but I didn't. And um, I was going to say that was that nurturing part of him where he wanted to get the best out of the artist. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think he really wanted as much as there's been a lot of stuff made about this feud between Ted and Ed. And there were, there were times where they, their, you know, their relationship. I think got strained. Ted always wanted the best for Ed. And, you know, he even said, even when there was like things were being said, he always felt like I was just, just venting. He never really took it personally about, you know, basically anyone would say anything untoward about him coming from the Van Halen camp after the split. He still thought of Ed as the kid who he saw at the Starwood and just want, you know, I think he felt, to be honest with you, felt you know, kind of like a fatherly affection for him, you know? And again, I'm not trying, I don't want to overstate that and overblow it. I'm not saying it's like, you know, kind of sort of like, you know, like second father thing. But I think that's where he felt like, you know, as a mentor, as a person who really did care about this kid who went from being this unknown guitar player to becoming the most successful guitarist in the whole world. I think Ted really, you know, wanted Ed to grow and to, um, and to help him be happy. That's what he wanted. And, you know, they definitely, you know, had that relationship uh, strained during the making of 1984. And, you know, it was a lot, there were a lot of, a lot of problems with, you know, that and with Dave. And there was a, there was obviously a, a band was coming apart. I mean, that was, the, that's the real, 
the subtext of the entire thing. I mean, that's obvious that the band was coming apart. Yeah, and that was some of the questions I had because Ted had a philosophy there where he wanted to keep Van Halen together. And he said that many times. He didn't consider when they became, you know, quote unquote, Van Hagar, that was Van Halen. But he was trying to keep Dave, whether it was the, you know, Crazy from the Heat album and you know, those projects, he thought that that would keep Van Halen together. But I guess it backfired. Because it seemed like that period was trying to keep it together, but it actually went in reverse. And was there any other discussion that Ted had around that particular fallout period? No, I mean, I think the book was pretty straightforward. I mean, there really wasn't a lot of cutting room floor stuff. I mean, I think the thing is that Ted, I think in retrospect, you kind of look at that and go, well, of course that didn't work. Of course, the brothers would have gotten angry about the solo record. You know, Ted didn't really hear that directly from the brothers, but he sort of heard it, you know, second, third hand from people at Warner Brothers that they were unhappy with Dave's solo record. You know, Ted was was frustrated the way things had gone at 5150 and felt there had been a lot of wasted time and and just there could have been a much more um, efficient way of making the record. And when Dave wanted to make the solo record, which was the EP, which wasn't supposed to be anything like Van Halen, he said, sure, let's do it. You know, and he thought that also that that was going to help get some of that stuff out of Dave's system because he, he knew that Dave was extremely frustrated with the way the work had been done in 5150 as well. So the idea would be also have this come out, let Dave have his little moment in the in the, the sun with the the solo EP and then buy time for the band. I mean, that was the other thing that was interesting when Ted said, you know, I thought it would be good because that would mean if Ted and Dave did the solo record, they would basically keep Van Halen in the, in, quote, quote, Van Halen in the public eye, meaning Roth, and that the brothers and those guys could take some time off and just to basically kind of to settle back and not feel like, oh, we have to go and put another record out right away. Obviously, it didn't work. I think anyone who looks at the situation objectively is going to say, like, I don't think the solo rec EP is what broke up Van Halen. I mean, I think there were things that were already feeding into that. And, you know, to be honest, I think even if Dave hadn't done the solo EP, I think he was not going to go through it again. I don't think that's my personal, that wasn't what Ted told me. That's my personal take that he was not going to, you know, that he had, you know, I think he had felt really, um, you know, held hostage by the way the record had been made. That's my personal thing. That's not from what Ted told me. Yeah, no, I, I sensed that. And, and there was also some, I wouldn't call it backlash, but it felt like, you know, Diver Down because there were so many covers on that album. It felt like there was kind of a bad taste in the mouth going into that session. And I did have a question around that. I just kept thinking, you know, talking with Ted, it seemed like he would go back to, hey, let's do a cover here. Let's do a cover. And he said that, I guess he learned that from Lenny, the fact that, oh, well, you know, you're halfway there. Right. Was there anything else to that? Because if you look back, through the catalog that Ted produced, there are a lot of covers. No, I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, Ted did that a lot. I mean, he did it with, uh, I mean, I just did a, a kind of off-the-wall example. He, Ted co-produced the second Private Life record with Ed up at 5150, and the, the band did Domino, right, by uh, Van Morrison. You know, this was like, yeah, this was kind of a, a staple. I mean, I think what Ted's take was that with cover songs is, okay, out of the gate, it can be a good thing because you want to make sure that your song really gets a fair hearing. And if you already have a song that's already been a hit and you cover it, you have a better chance of getting a fair hearing on the radio. So that's what happened with You Really Got Me. Ted really wanted to make sure that Van Halen didn't get brushed away. And with You Really Got Me, he knew that was going to catch the ear of radio programmers. But the stuff that went on with Diver Down, I think it's pretty well laid out in the book. The album was made in a rush. There was not enough time to, to do the pre-production. There was a lot of stuff that was just kind of a Ted said kind of thrown together, you know? And so I think that was the thing. I mean, they made the, it basically went from, we're not, you know, we don't need to make a record to, oh, we need to make a record in 
it's crazy how fast that record was done. I don't mean like the studio recording time. I mean that if you think about something like Van Halen 1, they demoed the material for Van Halen 1 in April of 1977. They go in the studio in, se- in September and October, and the album doesn't come out until February. But basically, with Diver Down, between like February and April, that whole thing was compressed. That was where you kind of ran into that issue. And, you know, I, I think Ted knows that, that uh, you know, it was not ideal. I mean, it was, ne- you know, it was never something that he would have preferred. He would have preferred the original songs to be on the record. But he's, you know, we're just, like you said, with, uh, you know, with uh, Dancing in the Streets, like, we're trying to finish it. I was like, I, we, needed, we needed songs. We just tried to finish it. You know, it wasn't a matter of like, oh, I want to do covers because of, you know, because I, with something like Diver Down, if you look at the, you know, the cover songs in there, it's not like Big Bad Bill was something that they needed to put on the record to get hit. It was just to fill up the record. It was, you know, it's a fun song and I'm happy it's on there, but you know, there certainly were Van Halen originals that could have been, as we know, that could have been on there instead of something like Big Bad Bill. I was just blown away. I mean, reading through here that his favorite VH solo was in You're No Good. And so I went back and I listened to it and I was like, that actually is a pretty good guitar solo, but I actually never thought about it before until it was called out in the book. And then of course, his favorite VH song of all time is Ain't Talking About Love. He's, he's been, you know, it's funny if people change it. He's been saying that since I first talked to him, you know, five, six years ago, he's been, you know, he talked about love. It's been, that's never been off his number one spot. You know, I, I, the, uh, you're no good conversation actually didn't come to pretty late in the game in terms of doing the book. I mean, that was kind of in the last work through of the book. I mean, we talked about it, but we really like went back back and he wanted, he said, Oh, I want to tell you something. And he kind of went through the whole story about how that song came together and how he wanted to get the, the really evil menacing tone to the song and how we sort of imagined doing that with uh, explaining to Dave and Ed how to coach them up. And so, but yeah, the, uh, the picks are interesting. I mean, it's Ted, like it's obviously it's Ted Temple in picking them. So you got to take them with the utmost seriousness, but it's, it's, uh, you know, it's kind of an out of the left field thing. I would think that most people, I'd say like 99% of Van Halen fans would never say you're no good. It's their favorite solo just because of, you know, whatever, it's just, it's a different perspective. So many. <laughs> yeah. And so did it come down to, I mean, of all of his songs, I was trying to think back and I went back through the book and I, I just couldn't find it. Greg, did he ever say what his favorite song ever that he produced? Yeah. I mean, I think he, he, uh, what did he say? I mean, I feel like he did tell me, a number of songs. Well, I mean, I think there's been a, like there are a number that he would say is among his favorite. I mean, one of the he talked about um, there's a, a Nicolette Larson song which no one's going to have ever heard. It's called Rio de, de Janeiro Blue, which is one like a, on the second side of um, Nicolette's first. I think a Nicolette's first record. You know, they had like a little mariachi band play, and they had this whole. They basically with the music, he felt like it really told the story of, of the lyrics, and he was really pleased with that. He talked about how that was one of his favorites, but I mean, I think he always said that like you know, ain't talking about love is like. My favorite. So I always took that to mean like it was what his favorite among pretty much everything he had ever done. But you know, I mean, you can go through the a lot of the Doobie Brothers catalog, and he would point to a lot of songs. He'd be like, "Oh, that was like you know, uh, you know, listen to the music." He always talked about how what a landmark that was for the band, and just incredible hit for those guys. Yeah, it sounds to me. I mean, I was thinking about this, especially around the end of the book, where you know that traumatic, you know, whole scene around. I mean, there's a couple firings in this book that I wanted to ask you about, but the one that got me was when they just said, basically, Ted, uh, you're done here. Yeah. And it seemed like all of a sudden his soul kind of shut down. It seemed like the music was keeping him going. He just said to me, I mean, I just talked to him in the last couple of days and he's like, you know, I looked at the book and he goes, I kind of had forgotten how many artists I did. And I know that sounds like a ludicrous thing for him to say, like, for the, you know, people listening to that, but he's, he was like, I, I worked all the time. He's like, I just worked constantly. And it's like, when I went, when I actually could page through the book and see, like, I did this, I did this, I did this. He's just sort of it all like together in one book. I could see how many 
albums I did. He's like, I was kind of blown away. <laughs> you know, but that's what he told me he would do. He would, you know, in the 70s when he was really going, you know, full blast on his career, he would go to Amigo during the day and Sunset Sound at night or vice versa. Basically, it would be like you'd have two bands going at once sometimes. You'd have like the doobies in the afternoon and then he'd go over to Sunset Sound and do Carly Simon at night or something. So, um, yeah, I think when the firing happened, he was, um, yeah, crushed. And I think he realizes, of course, the thing that was the crusher for him was that he couldn't work at all, that he took the money because, his, you know, because he was advised to. And I think a lot of people, I mean, it's $5 billion. I mean, it's whatever it was. It was like, oh, someone's going to give you $5 billion not to work. You kind of be insane to be like, no, I'm going to work. You keep your $5 million. I'm going to go try to make $5 million by myself. But I think that was what it was. I mean, I think the firing was tough for Ted because he had only ever been at Warner Brothers. He had been an artist there starting in 66 and had been with the label all those years and had all, all those hits. And I think that was the thing for Ted, too, that was very painful for him where he felt so, I don't know the words, just, just crushed because he was like, well, I don't understand why they were willing to pay me all this money not to work when I could have kept working for less money, you know, and made them money, basically. Yeah, and, and that's what floored me. And that one floored me. And then the other one floored me, which was, so he passed on an Aerosmith album. He went in to talk to Roth and David's like, yeah, uh, you're you're fired, Ted. The way he said it, it's like he was sitting behind a desk and said, you're gone. Yeah. And he went to do Skyscraper by himself. So I started thinking, was Roth his mentor? Like, did he train him to produce? <laughs> because I didn't hear anything in the book where Ted said that he was training somebody else. It was always, you know, I, I thank Lenny. And I just wondered who he passed his lineage on to. Well, here's the thing. I think the guys he tried to mentor, it's an interesting question. He wanted... Don Landy to become a producer. And Don didn't want that job. I mean, I've actually talked to Don about this. And, you know, and, and so, you know, very simply, I mean, Don was basically like, I didn't, it was to me, it wasn't worth, you know, I'm an engineer and it wasn't worth the headache. You know, basically, but you have a lot more responsibility and you have a lot more just stuff you have to deal with when you're the producer. And he felt he was an engineer. The other guy he mentored, if you look, um, is Jeff Hendrickson. And Jeff was actually the associate producer. So if you look at a number of the albums that Ted did with Jeff, Ted would get credit Jeff as an associate producer. So, which was, you know, I thought was, was really um, Ted's way of kind of trying to say, like, I'm setting this guy up to do a long-term thing. Now, Jeff ended up leaving the music industry in the 90s. The kind of, you know, Jeff was the guy who did a lot of hard rock. And obviously that whole genre of music kind of blew up. And, and Jeff became kind of, you know, out of favor as an engineer just because he was like, oh, you did this stuff. We don't, we want a different sound. So like, you know, example, look at um, Racing After Midnight. I'm pretty sure... Jeff Henderson is an associate producer in that. Look at Bullet Boys, Freak Show. And, you know, there's a number of them. He's listed it as an associate producer. So, I th you know, I think that was where he he kind of looked at it was um, he wanted to, you know, set up his engineers to go on to do it. But, yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I don't think he really, you know, there was never anybody that I can think of. Hope I'm not missing anybody that really, you know, worked with Ted as a in, as a studio engineer and kind of went on to um, do that. Because you ultimately said he was I, there was a quote there about like he's a professor or something of rock and roll or something like that. I, and that just set me like he's he wasn't going to be a teacher, and you wondered if he's going to keep teaching. Yeah, I mean, I think he when he, you know when he came to to Roth and Van Halen. I'm actually think the guy he talked about. You know, I mentioned in Van Halen Rising, so I didn't repeat it in, in the Ted Templeman book because I didn't want it to seem like I was just rehashing the same basic phrases over and over again. But he talked about Alex, that Alex had a, you know, was a guy who really had a, a great sense for arrangement. He, we talked about that in Van Halen Rising, that, you know, he'd be out at the soda machine and Alex would come up to him and say, hey, Ted, Ted, you know, you could do this. And he'd be like, oh, that's a great idea. And, you know, he really thought that Alex was the guy among all the guys in Van Halen 
you know, I guess beyond Ed, who's kind of going to become like the studio hermit, you know, it was that Alex was the other guy who was really had that sort of that sense more than Roth, you know, and again, the, the whole firing thing with Roth. I mean, I think for Ted, I know for Ted, the thing that made him most angry was that he had particularly asked, said, I really want to make sure, are you sure we're doing this? And that, you know, Skyscraper, I'm going to produce Skyscraper. And the answer was, yes, you're going to produce Skyscraper. So he passed on Aerosmith to the second Aerosmith record. And so um, that was the thing that was for Ted just to kind of be, you know, yeah. basically it's like, you know, having a shot of doing two things and then having a shot of doing zero things because of the way it worked out. Yeah. So a couple of the questions I had down here I was thinking about was, so did he ever indicate if you ever spoke to Roth again after that? Discussion? You know, I can't say for sure. I know he hasn't talked to Dave in quite a while, but I can't say for sure when the last time he talked to Dave was. I, I mean, it may have been that time. I don't think I ever actually asked him to say, was that the last time we talked to Dave? That was the last time that at least in our conversations he indicated he did, but I never said, you know, pinned him down. Um, you know, you know, no, it's just, it's, uh, I'm trying to think about it too. I mean, I just, it just uh, he has never indicated to me that he's had another conversation with Roth beyond that that last one at Roth's office in 88, but they, they could have been. I mean, he just may never have told me. Yeah, there was a mention in there about BH uh, in 95, yeah. checking yep. out the Balance album, some of the tracks. But, then, you know, they did the whole VH reunion in 96 with Roth coming back on those three tracks and, you know, the whole incident of MTV Music Awards with Beck. So I didn't know if there were, you know, that once that came back again, if something happened, and then obviously... They no, back. I don't think so. I mean, I think I actually... I actually I'm pretty sure he had no contact with those guys during that whole Roth reunion thing. I'm pretty sure that that was like never even on the radar. You know, my gut feeling is that, you know, that even Roth would have understood that that might have like added an extra level of, you know, hey, let's bring Ted back or something. You know, if that would have been Dave's idea, like another extra level of like uh, apprehension or something like that. I don't know that for sure, but that's my, my, you know, but I do know that Ted never mentioned to me that like anytime during that whole like Dave's come back to Van Halen and he got a call or anything like that. I mean, yeah, it's interesting. He went up to 5150 to listen to Balance as an executive, which he's, you know, he said was weird. You know, you go up there and you're like, hey, here, I'm back again. And, you know, I have to sit here. And like, you know, he said the album was good. He was like, what's he going to say? Like, oh, you know, change this. It's Bruce Fairbairn, right. who's a great producer. And Ted knew that. And, you know, he knew those guys could could do it, them, you know, do it with Bruce and do a great job. And it was a great record. But yeah, he said it was kind of an odd thing to be up there to be like, you know, kind of like, you know, here I'm listening. I'm the exact because again, he's the executive, right? He's the senior vice president. And he's up there listening to the record just to kind of sign off on it. The one thing that still blew me away. So we're talking about balance is so wait a minute. There is a session in the beginning where Sammy, they were considering Sammy, you know, oh, he was in Montrose. Maybe we should plug him in. But then I started thinking it was Ted basically said that Roth charisma and lyric writing ability. He knew his limitations on vocals. So he looked at that. But then he looked at Sammy and said, well, Sammy has some limitations on lyric writing, but he's a phenomenal singer. So it seemed like at one point, you know, they could have flipped it, but he said that would have been the biggest mistake I had. Right. So the question I was thinking about was, OK, so they did Van Halen one. Van Halen 2 was with, with Ross. They did 3 with Sharon. So you think if they just would have held on to Van Halen 2 and not did the Van Halen 2 album, <laughs> Van Halen, maybe that could have brought Templeman back because they would have been, it's Van Halen 2. <laughs> second incarnation. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, I think it's like, it's interesting because, yeah, I mean, I think for a lot of the 80s, obviously, you know, Ted and had contact with those guys through the the sequencing of the records, which I think is the most interesting, you know, more than that uh, Don and Ed would call Ted up and say, Hey, we just finished 
OUA one two. Do you want to listen to it? Yeah, bring it up. And they would sit there and they would talk about, oh, what you know, this could be the first song, this could be the second song, or what? What are you gonna, you know, what are you gonna conclude the record with? You know, so you know, Ted had this relationship with those guys that you know went on for decades. But yeah, it's interesting to think about that whole that whole uh, scene that went on after the the breakup with Sammy and everything. But yeah, Ted, you know, you know, Ted was uh was not involved in anything anything with that. Yeah, it's funny is you know Ted called it out. I mean, it's still today. There's the the Van Halen Roth camp. There's a Van Hagar camp. You even got the I guess Van Sharon camp if that's a camp. But everyone has these favorite eras that they lock into. And really, I always just factored in. Hey, Eddie Van Halen's there. He's writing music. I'm gonna listen. And to me, that's what it went down to is that I think Templeman his focus was always on that music and the musicianship and. I think that carried through all of his records. Yeah, I mean, I think the example I always, I've, I've given quite a bit is that, and I think it's the right analogy. Ted didn't have this analogy I kind of came up with after I finished the book, was that, you know, for people who lived through the 80s, you remember that Jagger and Richards were at each other's throat in the mid-80s, were really nasty to each other, kind of saying, you know, things in the press about each other. It looked like the Stones were never going to work together again. And then there was a rumor that the Stones had asked Daltrey, though you know, the who was broken up is the mid-80s, that Daltrey to sing in the Stones. And I think that's the analogy that people should understand where Ted was coming from with with Sammy. You know, it's not that Daltrey isn't a great singer. I mean, Daltrey's an amazing singer. I mean, we all, we all know Daltrey could get on stage and could front, the, he could he could front the Stones. He could pull it off, right? We could, Daltrey could get up there and he could sing Satisfaction, but it wouldn't be the Rolling Stones. You'd be like, yeah, that's great. It's Roger Daltrey singing these songs. And so I think that's where Ted was coming from. It's not, it wasn't a shot at Sammy that, oh, Sammy's not good enough or I don't like Sammy. It was more that it just didn't feel like the real thing to him. You know, and that, I think that's really how I would have people think about it is that, you know, it wasn't that Ted was, was trying to cut down the brothers thinking that Sammy was a good singer or cut down Sammy or just, you know, trash the whole idea of, of any of those guys individually. It was just a matter of, it's not Van Halen to me. It's something different. Call it something different. Just like if you put Daltrey and the Stones, it's not the Stones. I mean, I think we would all would agree that would be not the Rolling Stones without Mick Jagger. So that was Ted's perspective. And of course, the, but the marketplace saw it differently, right? Everyone understood Sammy was in Van Halen. That was accepted and people dug it. So that was a different, you know, a different outcome maybe than Ted had had expected and to some extent. I don't, again, I don't think that Ted necessarily thought it was going to flop. He just thought it was just not going to be Van Halen. Well, there's so many interesting stories in this book, all the way from, you know, Van Morrison, Aerosmith, David Lee Roth, the Doobie Brothers, Van Halen, it's all over the place. Was there... You know, was there one most interesting thing that you learned about writing this book personally? Yeah, I mean, I, I learned what a producer really does. I mean, I think that was for me the biggest takeaway was that, you know, I think I thought I knew what a producer did, but when I actually sat and talked to Ted, it really was, you know, <laughs> it was a whole behind the curtain experience to be able to understand how the whole process goes in making a record and, and that the role of a record producer is, can be like a coach, a psychologist, a music critic. I just there's whole there's all these different hats that a producer wears in the making of a record that really don't necessarily appear to people who hear records. And for me, that was the biggest thing for me was that I really learned what a record producer does, which was amazing. Well, it was great. Teb Templeman, a platinum producer's life in music. Greg, it was a great talking with you today. And you said you were talking with Ted recently. Is there anything up Ted's sleeve? Anything anything else coming out? Yeah, no, I think he, like a lot of people, he's just sort of trying to ride out the whole COVID thing. I mean, he did say to me that, you know, I wish I could get back in a studio sometime, you know, kind of just wistfully, you know, because he, you know, he would whatever visit with different people and listen to music and stuff like that, not necessarily making records. But yeah, it's just, you know, with everything that's going on in California right now with COVID, it's just 
It's like everywhere. I mean, some places are worse than others. And I think he's in the LA area and you can imagine how difficult that is right now with, you know, with the restrictions and everything with uh, people being able to do things. So I think, yeah, I think he would like everyone else. Like it would like to be over, you know, I would say that the only thing I would say is that up his sleeve, I mean, he, he and I have talked, we're really hoping that when all this ever lifts, that we would be able to do the book signings that we had talked about. We were going to do a couple in LA, trying to do a different couple of events that were going to be going to be really cool that got postponed and um just let's hope we uh, get beyond this if we can move on to the next stage of life and not be locked down all the time and it would be great so is your next effort are you going to be researching mike anthony <laughs> i haven't heard from mike yeah it's like, <laughs> i haven't heard from anybody no one's called me uh, begging me to write a book about them so uh you know and uh as we mentioned before we went on to the recording i you know it's with a family with uh, schools being different in the way the public schools are going to be and, and going to be teaching students, it's going to be a little challenging for me to try to, to get right after another book anyway. But um, yeah, I mean, I've obviously I read another book. I'll probably write another Van Halen book one day, but I really enjoyed doing the biography with Ted. I would welcome the opportunity and all seriousness, obviously, of anybody who um, I respected, like a Michael Anthony, just again, just to use the name or you pick anybody, you know, who would be of that level of caliber of musician and have that career. Would, I would be honored and of course would be thrilled to, to write a book with someone. So, uh, but no, my cousin called me. Sandy hasn't called me. Mike hasn't called me. You know, uh, even, you know, Jason Bonham hasn't called me. Nobody's called me. So, uh, you know, my phone is, uh, my phone's on. I'm waiting for some calls, I guess. But yeah, hopefully the time comes, I'll write another book. Yeah, it'd be great. Well, keep up the good work. Thank you. Enjoy it. Check it out at all the retailers anywhere. It's Ted Templeman, a platinum producer's life in music. And Greg Renoff, thanks for being on the podcast today. Hey, it was my pleasure. Appreciate it, Mark. Thanks for the time. Really enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, same here. Take care. Thanks. All right, welcome back from the interview. Ray, it was pretty interesting that Greg jumped into, right around the end there, we started talking about his perspective of what he learned from personally writing this book. And he jumped mm-hmm. down, he said, it's all about, he kind of jumped into, he never knew really what a producer did. And mm-hmm. working with Ted, he really came out that you've got to wear a lot of hats. I mean, there's mm. there's so many things you have to do as a producer that it takes a special person to do it. Ted Templeman would work in the morning at one studio with the Doobie Brothers, and then he would go to work with Van Halen at night. And it was constant working with the artists and making sure they're okay. And it's not only the music, but them personally. He became friends with you know, Mike McDonald and Ed Van Halen, and these were friends. So it became more than just producing the music. Sure, absolutely. It gives us real insight into, as you said, the role of the producer, how important that role is in producing, right? In making, putting out, getting together. As you said, when we were leading in, you know, kind of making sure that the product gets out there, making sure that it all comes together. Like you mentioned, almost prodding the artist, you know, hey, you know, keeping in mind, so you've got sort of this economic element going on in your head or the financial element. Hey, we got to get this done because we got to get it out there because the studio's waiting for it and you're waiting for it because we're not going to get paid until this gets out. And at the same time, the artistic element to that, I want to make a good product and we're going to, we got to push to get the right product, get music that is what we want it to be and the sound that I want and the artist wants and that we've collaborated on. And that's the, you know, part of that's the whole, the synergy between those two that we have in the history of music and the history of popular music and rock and roll, that idea that it's kind of like a, a golfer firing his caddy, right? Or her caddy you know, the caddy and the golfer work together and the same kind of thing here that the producer and the artist work together and you need that. And if they can't get along, it's not going to work out. And the producer's 
going to go or get fired or the something's going to split up and they're going to go with somebody else. Yeah, it is definitely a, a dichotomy that you have to keep careful balance on. And another thing that jumped out to me on this interview was it's always hard when you're a producer to <laughs> figure out what is one of your favorite songs out of everything you did. And Ted, from at least from the wow. Van Halen catalog, said, ain't talking about love. The sound of it, everything around that, that was that's his favorite song. And then mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The, the VH solo to You're No Good, the cover, he's like, Ed Van Halen really did a great job on that solo. And talking with Greg, he thinks that talking with Ted Templeman, he never really referenced any other favorite song other than he talking about love. So if you were to look at his catalog, to me, is it a talking about love for you or are you thinking what a fool believes is the song that jumps out to you is one of, one of the, Oh my goodness. I don't know. Uh, I mean, what a fool believes is pretty, pretty darn good. I don't know that I have a favorite. I mentioned in our lead in forever man by Eric Clapton. I actually, that's one of my favorite Clapton tunes, the feel of that song. I don't know if it's my favorite Ted Templeman produced or co-produced or connected to kind of song. Even the the funny one is he worked with, he co-produced Michael McDonald's, Take It to the Heart album in, uh, what was 89? And I remember the lead track from that song. Uh, I was working adult contemporary radio back in the day. And I remember, and it didn't, it wasn't a big hit, and, at least in terms of pop music. But I mean, I can still hear that song, Take It to Heart. You know, I can hear that in, in my head. And so, you know, I don't know. I haven't really looked across his catalog enough, but there's a lot of really good stuff there. Yeah, there's so much. I mean, mm-hmm. Greg did say there was a Nicolette Larson song that Ted really favored as well. But there's so much. I mean, you're right. You you can't put a finger on it because you have to really zero in on the time period. And (laughs) there's probably some other sentimental value involved in some songs that are being created here. I mean, there was, you talked about that um, Uh Eat Him and Smile. You may remember the Frank Sinatra cover, Um, Easy. Well, there's a story in that says that they recorded that in the same studio that they recorded Frank Sinatra's hits. Because Ted wanted to get that vibe recording the song. Think about it. I mean, even that song itself on that album, I know it's it cover, oh, yeah. but think yep. of how many yeah. cover songs that David Lee Roth specifically did. You can count it on you know, both hands. <laughs> you know, you, you go in Van Halen, probably even deeper. So there's, uh, there's a lot of songs that I think had some definite meaning because of just the way they were produced and how they were handled. And I think that one of the other things that keeps striking me as we're talking and as, as we think about your interview, is the importance of music historians here too, right? That Renoff is taking, you know, he did it with the Van Halen book, he did it with this Ted Templeman book, that we don't know these stories a lot of times. We don't get these stories. We don't get a broader picture of how to put together a band, an album, a producer, you know, take your pick, what entity from music you want to talk about, even a, a movement, right? A style. And that's one of the things that good music historians do for us. They bring together those details. They do the interviews. They find all of these pieces of information, put it together into a story that's compelling, that's interesting, that's also factually correct, that it's not you know embellished. It's, it's history here. But at the same time, it tells us what goes on. And so when, when we are fans of music and, and you, know, you want to know, boy, 
what was the inspiration for that? Or how did all of that come together or everything, right? And again, just like we talked about the producer and the, the role of the producer, one of the reasons that we are able to do that is because of the job that music historians like Greg Renoff do. Yeah. I mean, hats off to Greg. Did a great job. I enjoyed everything about this book, his prior book. So if you're looking to look through the eyes of a producer, this is definitely a book you should check out. And you hit it on the head, Ray. I mean, this stuff will be lost forever because especially from the Van Halen camp, that generally is pretty tight-lipped about their process. And to get that inside information about you know how Jump was written, how those songs that are part of our lives. I mean, we talk about this a lot on, on Tunesmate that there are certain songs. You hear a song, you're taken back instantly. It makes you feel a different way. And that's part of the series you've been putting out. That's part of everything we do on the site is that one song may lead to another that you never thought of before. So yep. if we did the Ted Templeman playlist, courtesy of Greg Renoff, <laughs> we would probably have a different perspective because of just the way we knew some of these songs were written would probably change our dynamic of that list. Absolutely. And like you said, that's exactly what Tunesmate's all about. Well, we hope you continue to subscribe to our podcast. Make sure to give us some ratings. Hope you're enjoying it. And we also want you to make sure to continue to check out the posts that we are putting up every single day. That's We want to supply you with your daily 80s fix, along with some music to inspire you during this time. Well, my name's Mark. And I'm Ray. And we will see you next time on Tunesman. <laughs>